Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the On the Tape podcast. I am Dan Nathan, joined as always by Guy Adami and Liz Young. That would be EY from SoFi. Welcome, folks. Hello. What up? We got a big pod, okay? Just first and foremost, Guy and I had a great conversation with John Brignola. He is the founder of LBC Credit. We talked all about private credit. Seems like that's all that anybody wants to talk about every day. I open mm-hmm. up my fact set, my Bloomberg, the Wall Street Journal. There's an article on the front page about private credit. We give his take on the market and maybe some of the risks, some of the regulatory situations coming down the pike. We talk a little bit about M&A. We're going to talk about M&A. Guy, you had a really prescient call that U.S. Steel. Remember, we talked about that a little last week. You're like, you know what? This thing's not getting done at 45. And here we are. We wake up on a Monday. It gets done at 55. Nostradami again added. So we're going to talk more about the M&A environment. There's actually still a bunch of earnings this week. And I think some interesting names that might give us a good read on the consumer. A lot of housing data this week. We're going to talk about some of these targets. But first and foremost, let's do a little housekeeping here. What do you think, Liz? Um, If I threw out these names to you, I just Uh let's do like some name association here a little bit. Okay. Uh What is something that these all these names have in common, right? Uh So it'd be Keith Richards, Steven Spielberg, the great and recently departed Ray Liotta, Brad Pitt, Katie Holmes, Christina Aguilera, and Billie Eilish. What would you say about all those folks? Late and living legends. Legends, right? Absolutely. Very and really talented people, right? For the most part. I I mean, incredible. They all share a birthday. So today is deck 18. You don't say. Okay. Yeah. They all share a birthday. But you know who else? A very talented man who also has a birthday on deck 18. I'm at a loss. I I have no idea. Well, that would be Guy Christopher Adami. Look at that guy right there. And the beauty of today is not just like all those folks, they're sprinkled over decades. You don't even know where they were born and stuff like that. 
like that. Guy's probably more close to Steven Spielberg and uh, Keith Richards, but he shares a birthday with Brad Pitt. I mean, the actual birthday, birthday. and year. Yeah, how about that? So, guy, he ha- hates happy he's birthday. So mad at Look at right he's now. He's just do us me. one favor, people. If you're listening to this, get on the socials. Yeah. Get Guy Adami trending. Let's do it. Okay, at today. The heck out of him yeah. today. Yeah. Blow it up. That's what they say, right? Yeah. Blow yeah. it up or blow it out. Or that's are you Chipotle are you thing. cognizant of all of these very talented birthday folks? And you know that share one with you. You look up, you see who's has the same birthday as you, and I've always been shocked at the amount of really interesting people across a swath of industries. But you're right, Brad Pitt and I are the same day. Charles Oakley, one of my favorite Knicks of all time, is also a December eighteenth, nineteen sixty three guy. So yeah, throw that in the pipe and smoke it. Yeah, fair enough. All right, guy, we wish you a very happy birthday. We hope you have a great one. All right, let's get to this here. The last couple of weeks, we've just been digesting a lot of Fed speak and at least investors, what they perceive to be a massive pivot. We all saw this coming. That's the thing that I think is interesting. A few months ago, you know, there was still a 25 basis point hike priced in. And then mm-hmm. latter half of 2024 is when maybe a few cuts started to work in. That's all been pulled forward dramatically. And it's caused an orgy of buying. What are they calling it? I know the guy loves this term, the everything rally is. Oh, so here we are. We wake up. Tide all ships, yeah, something like that. I feel like we're going to wake up every Monday morning for the next kind of month or two, and it's going to be strategists tripping over each other to raise their targets and come up with rosy reasons to stay very constructive, which is fine. It's what most of them do. It was not too dissimilar to what we saw at the end of last year, where there was a lot of pessimism. A lot of the bullish strategists threw in the towel at the bottom, and then the chase was on in January and February. So let's talk. Talk to us a little bit about this when you see Goldman this morning, their target is going above somebody else's and that's been ratcheted up just in the last kind of few weeks. David Costner writes equities were already pricing in positive economic activity, but now reflected even more robust outlook. Talk to me a little bit about this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the outlook is necessarily all that much more robust. I think that the broadening of this rally is what people are chasing and what's caused everybody to sit back and say, all right, did we think about this the right way? Because there has been the argument throughout all of 2023, we had a lot of attempts at broadening out in the rallies, particularly in July. And a lot of these sectors did participate then. We had small caps really come back off the mat. We had a lot of sectors rotate in and it looked very promising, but it never quite got above where you want it to be for breakout reasons. Mm -hmm. This one looks a little bit better. This one looks stronger. And obviously, we've made new all-time highs in the Dow. We've got a bunch of Russell 2000 stocks trading at 52-week highs. So those are promising things. And we're still in this period of time where it's almost as if innocent until proven guilty, Mm -hmm. right? We've got an expansion that is losing steam, but not contracting. We've got inflation that's coming down to a much more comfortable level. So there are things to celebrate. And I know we'll talk about my outlook later. As a strategist and as people who try to figure out what's going to happen at the end of the year, first of all, I have to say I'm grateful that I don't have to do that. Yeah. I don't have to have a price target because any any of them who even have to have them would tell you it's a really difficult, if not impossible game. It's like pinning a tail on a very small moving donkey. <laughs> and they're going to have to adjust it again, more likely than not. So it's a tough thing to do. But I also think that there's this ability as a strategist and this necessity as a strategist to prove that you're not doing it with your head buried in the sand. You have to recognize what's going on. And yes, there are things to be worried about, but the market is the market. The tape is never necessarily wrong in the moment. And you have to recognize that there's a lot of buying opportunity that 
maybe people missed out on in October, November-ish when this rally was questioned. So Guy, what do you make of that comparison to, let's say, the start of 2023, where the market had been rallying, right, into like off of the October lows a little bit. And it seems like the chase was on in January, the January effect, all that sort of crap. But what's different now, and I think this is the point of Costin's note, is that the sentiment has massively shifted, right? So we are literally right. firmly in that soft landing. And that's the, the maybe that's the thing, the disconnect, the difference, and, and maybe why it doesn't go the, the same way. That All that being said, a lot of folks are, have much higher year-end price targets, 5,000-ish or, or, or above, and we're not that far from that. But a lot of folks are also saying that they could see the first part of the year is kind of rocky. I don't love that consensus either, Guy. We've had a few people on Fast Money. A bunch of people have come on the podcast and said similar. The first half is going to be rocky, only to have a recovery in the second half, probably bolstered in large part by Fed cuts, a reacceleration of the economy, and we're going to close next year 5,000 or north thereof. So that's seemingly now is consensus, which is somewhat alarming, I think, because typically when everybody thinks the same thing, the opposite happens. But your point is well taken. We went into this year, 2022-2023, with, I think, peak pessimism, only to have now probably peak optimism going into 2024. But I'll say this, Elizabeth talks about this, we brought it up a number of times, seemingly strategists are making the same mistakes they made probably 14 or 15 years ago, we're just starting to ratchet up earnings expectations in the face of leading economic indicators being down now 19 months in a row. There's a swath of things people should be concerned about, but are seemingly turning a blind eye, thinking somehow it's going to be different this time. This The data suggests, and Liz can talk about this as well, but the data suggests this is pretty robust, late cycle things we've seen before, but we're probably seeing it in a more, I don't know, vociferous way this time. The cascade of optimism, I've never seen anything like it in a time when people should be anything but optimistic, in my opinion. Yeah, and Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley is out with a note this morning saying, over the past month, we've experienced arguably the best stretch of breath improvement in 2023. This is encouraging sign. Small caps look very compelling given higher probability of accommodative monetary policies. Okay, so Mike remains structurally bearish to Guy's point that he just made about late cycle sort of behavior. That's what he sees as going on in the economy right now. And regardless of what's going on in the stock market, we highlighted the fact that yes, the IWM, the Russell 2000 small caps outperformed the S&P like I think by one and a half percent off the October 27 low, but they're still down 20% from their late 2021 highs. So can you be in the camp that accommodative Fed policy coming in the not so distant future is going to be good for small caps, which have underperformed over the last call it two years, but also maybe that we're going to see a material slowdown. Can small cap stocks work, but have a broader slowdown? I think a lot of this ends up being just an argument over your time frame. So if you think about small caps in general, if the if most of the correct was caused by the fact that rates went up, capital constriction happened, and small caps generally can't internally finance their growth. So they have to go to markets, debt markets generally, to finance what they're doing at the company. Then yes, lower rates should give them a little bit more of a tailwind. I would still concentrate more on something like the S&P 600. It goes through a profitability screen. It goes through a little bit more of an earnings momentum screen. So you've got companies that are higher quality. But what would happen in small caps, you have to think about what's the bigger driver? Is it rates? Even in a drawdown, rates will continue to come down. Mm -hmm. If we do have a recession, the Fed will cut to try to stimulate. So that is still a tailwind. But yes, small caps would get hit in that environment. If your time frame is long enough 
that you can look through that. I think right now you probably can enter at a more reasonable valuation, but that's always going to be, there's always going to be a group of stocks. I could say the same exact thing, replace the word small caps with international equities, replace the word small caps with some sector that hasn't done well. There's always going to be something out of favor. Value stocks. You could say that right now. But time horizon, to your point, is actually the thing. But like, if we're going to go into a recession, small cap stocks are going to get hit the hardest, in my opinion. So I don't think the timing of chasing them after a 24% rally makes a lot of sense, especially if you're in a camp where soft landing consensus might be a little worse than what consensus is expecting. And Guy, I'm just curious, this is from Bespoke late last week. The small cap Russell 2000 index made a new 52-week high today after hitting a 52-week low just 48 days ago. That's the shortest turnaround time in the index's history. So when you see that, you don't want to chase that, man. Am I right? I'm leading the witness here a little bit, but I see stats like that. And some folks, they see it as confirming their bullish thesis. I actually see it the opposite way. No, I agree with that. But I would have said prior to that there's no way in the wake of, listen, I understand the last unemployment data was better than expected. Obviously, the unemployment rate went down. However, you know, given what we've seen of a swath of different companies over a bunch of different verticals, people are getting fired. Layoffs are happening, which is, again, typical late cycle stuff. So I would have interpreted that and say there's no reason to chase small caps at all because they're going to be hamstrung by bank credit contracting and unemployment rate going higher. That would have been wrong as well. But the duration with which we went from lows to highs is startling. And a large part of that is too is obviously 10-year yields moving 110 basis points from 5% below 4. And that helped a lot of these regional banks, which are a large component. But the catch-up trade is alive and well right now. People are actually flocking to these names thinking, you know what, it's just a matter of time before the S&P is effectively making all-time highs, the NASDAQ as well, the Russell's going to catch up. I just don't see it in this environment. But you know what, Dan, I would have said the same thing three weeks ago. It's interesting. It seems like some folks in, within the Fed, and we talk about all the time how focused, let's say, the Fed is to the stock market, and, and a lot of folks disagree on this issue. But it looks like that a lot of these Fed governors and, and, and speakers came out late last week. So the S&P is literally up 15%, what looks like a straight line since that late October 27th uh, reversal day and loosening of financial conditions, Liz. I mean, like, like think about it, right? So mm-hmm. mortgage rates have come down. We've seen housing. That's one of the reasons why we want to track some of this housing data this week and just give us a sense for some of the consumer confidence data was better than expected. Consumers are feeling good. Rates come in just a little bit on the mortgage, maybe get some activity going there. People feel a bit wealthier with the stock market going higher, whether they own them or not, just mm-hmm. the perception of it. So they try to throw cold water on it because they see the potential for just continued rip. And then all of a sudden, how can you lower interest rates if the stock market is making new all time, if housing market is coming unstuck, if consumer confidence is peaking? Isn't that the sort of stuff that they were trying to raise rates to tamp down a bit. One of the things that I think Powell did a a decent job of in the meeting last week was distinguish between the fact that, yes, financial conditions can loosen. That in and of itself is not necessarily the problem. But what it does is it makes the challenge that they have more difficult, the Mm -hmm. challenge that they have to lower inflation. And he indicated it would take longer to do so. Right. So that to me was a subtle way of saying Stop forgetting about the fact that we told you rates were going to be higher for longer. You've all suddenly forgotten that we said higher for longer. The stronger growth is, the stronger consumer sentiment is, the stronger the market is, 
the longer we're going to have to leave them elevated. And that continues to be the case. So I think maybe that's what the Fed, other Fed governors are trying to push back on. Look, it's not working. The market still is pretty convinced that we're going to get the first cut in March. Mm -hmm. And that may or may not be correct. But I think they're trying to push back on it simply because they're saying the market has declared victory, Mm -hmm. right? The market has completely declared victory, declared that the soft landing is happening or even already happened and inflation has been solved. And there is a lot of people at the Fed just saying that's not entirely the case yet. So slow your roll. Yeah, Guy, but the point is we're at 47.19 in the S&P 500. The all-time high was 4,800 the first week of 2022. Let's just say by the time we get to the Fed's meeting on January 31st, and everyone's going to be looking for clues. It could be one word. It could be any, right? Something like that. They're going to be looking for clues. How can the Fed, if the S&P is at all-time highs, how can they hint of cutting at their next meeting in March? Or is it to sell the news? Like, I don't know, but my, my point is, I think their job gets much harder from here with risk assets where they are. I agree with you. And if it was just through the lens of the stock market, 100%, the bull case has been for a while that, you know what, they'll navigate unemployment, it'll tick higher, but it won't go higher in a meaningful way. If you look at the last reading, that's sort of what's happening, number one. Number two, they're also sort of hinged on the fact that inflation is still growing, but it's moderating, right? It's growing less fast than it has been. And you know what, if we just keep doing what we're doing by the natural course of events, it's going to trend down to our 2% target. Under that backdrop, I guess effectively, they can make those cuts early next year. I'm still of the belief that's not going to be possible because I think you're going to see this reacceleration of inflation. And I do think despite the fact that unemployment ticked lower last time, maybe for a number of different factors, it's going to start to move meaningfully higher. But I guess to answer your question, the bull case is playing out. So the folks that have been saying this now for the last six to nine months, how they can stick this landing and thread this needle Right now, it appears as though they're doing exactly that. I just don't think it can continue on this trajectory. Yeah, you know, it's also really curious. It was, I think, that last week in October, guy, when Rick Santelli from CNBC was in town. Remember, he he did this chart on our show. He was doing it by hand. And this video caught a lot of steam. Liz, I don't know if you caught this, but he said, be prepared for rates above 10%, maybe as high as 13%. And that was it. That was mm-hmm. the top, okay? And I think that month, Jamie Dimon was saying six, seven percent, maybe higher, that sort of thing. So it's it just it, it is interesting. And, and the Jamie Dimon one is is really curious because here's a guy who has presided over from the pandemic. And he was very clear about the, the mistakes that some of his peers made, right? Like buying treasuries when they were yielding nothing at the bottom. But he's also been really pessimistic over the last, let's call it 18 months or so, calling for an economic storm. So how can a guy like that, who has all of the purview that he has about the consumer, about just corporations, about how can he be that wrong? about what's gone on over the last 18 months and what I might mean, continue to happen. I mean, we could sit here and, and argue about what does wrong even really mean. Jamie Dimon is somebody who was at the forefront of the financial crisis, not necessarily because they caused mm-hmm. the whole thing, but at the forefront in the sense of having to be one of the mouthpieces and one of the decision makers of how to save the financial system. And if you look at it, what a lot of people are doing right now is trying to compare this period to historical periods. Mm-hmm. And the bull case would be it's much like the mid-90s, right? They pulled it off. There was a soft landing. We muddled through. The market did okay. There was no crash until early 2000s after we all know what happened then. Or you could compare it to the financial crisis where it was this like long and protracted, still grind higher in the market. Mm -hmm. And what if this is a period like December of 2006, where in 2007, yeah, some bad stuff happened, but the market didn't really fall apart 
until 2008, mm-hmm. right? So we just had this sort of, again, grinding through 2007. Maybe Jamie is looking at something like that, looking at the length of time that it took. And this is also a point that Jeffrey Gunlock has made. Things take a lot longer than we think they're going to mm-hmm. because we're just impatient as humans. We're impatient as investors, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to happen. So I think Jamie Dimon and maybe Gunlock at the same time are, are thinking that same thing, that it's near impossible and frankly has never happened before that the Fed has actually pulled something like this off with this much constriction and that the market gets this far away from mm-hmm. itself, this bifurcated, this expensive without having some sort of, I don't want to call it a catastrophe, but having some sort well, of come to Jesus. They had a near catastrophe in March of this year. And we've talked about it a lot by backstopping deposits by yeah. like, despite QT going on, infusing a bunch of liquidity. That was the thing. And I'm not saying it was like the Lehman moment, but it it could have been or should have been. And what happened, obviously, in 2008 is that they were very slow to act. Yes, they cut rates and stuff, but TARF and TARF and all that sort of stuff was always a little too late. So they learned some lessons, Guy, about that. Because to me, if we had had those bank failures without the extraordinary measures that the Fed took, we would have had that recession that the stock market was pricing late last year. It's interesting. The counterfactual is always tough, but you're right. Probably the best thing that happened to the market this year oddly enough. And you go back and look, because if you think about what was happening prior to, things were starting to deteriorate in terms of the market and stuff. And then obviously it cascaded into Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of those other regional names, and that proved to be the bottom. So last, well, last year, this year, earlier this year, the best thing that happened to the stock market was exactly that, somewhat counterintuitive. But to Liz's point, and I think to Jamie Dimon's point, he doesn't appear to be on the right course now in terms of some of his prognostications but it doesn't mean he's going to be wrong. And when the most important banker in the world says the things that he says constantly now, pretty robustly over the last six to nine months, if not longer, you have to take notice. And quickly about Rick Santella, you're right. Within a couple of weeks, he had top ticketed. But you know, one of the things he said through four and three quarters, you're probably going to see 5%. That happened. I don't think he thought we were going to trade down below 4%. But he also thought over the next few years, you could see rates meaningfully higher. So there's still a lot of chapters left in this book. And I'm not one to just say Jamie Dimon was wrong out of hand, because I still think he's on to something. One of the things that I, I think we should all keep in mind, too, is the rescue or, or whatever we're calling it mm-hmm. for the regional bank crisis that happened earlier this year, that bank term funding program that was put in place to protect a depository institutions is scheduled to end in March of next year. And if that gets extended, it should send a signal that, okay, we're not quite ready to Mm -hmm. take the punch bowl away. We're not quite ready to take the net, the safety net away. I would expect that it probably gets extended or maybe the end of it gets softened because if you rip it away suddenly and something goes wrong, then then we have a problem. But that's something that I think we should keep on our radar. It doesn't get talked about very much, but there's really only, there's less than three months of that left. Yeah. So it's hard to think about. So we have all these rosy outlooks by all these strategists. That's how we started out a little bit. What is the thing that kind of derails the economy? What is the thing that causes causes unemployment rate to go above 4% and then possibly 4.5%. Is it something domestic? We know it's an election year. We know that there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Fed to keep conditions fairly easy, right? And I think of it, and it really has to come from outside the U.S. guy, uh, you know what I mean? And, and we've talked about some of these geopolitical hotspots. It doesn't seem like the situation in the Middle East is going to get better um, anytime soon. So that's going to be something that might cause volatility in commodities, right? It might cause some major schisms between 
us and, and some of our allies or supposed allies in the Middle East and, and what that might mean, again, for, for crude. And then obviously there is China in Taiwan. But I think that we've spoken about this a lot. China's weakness in their economy and, and just this kind of back and forth. It seems every week we'll see new headlines guy about to stimulus or not to do stimulus. You know what I mean? It doesn't seem like they're that supportive right now of the economy. I'm just hard pressed to think what could happen from within that would cause a, a material weakening of the economy. The Fed did tell us they're expecting GDP to be 1.4% next year. That doesn't seem like that robust. It would take not too much of a shock somewhere in the system to cause things to materially slow down. I just think you have to let time play out. And again, I'll say I thought things would happen a lot sooner than they have or inevitably will have, but it doesn't mean they're not going to happen. And now you go back, I did a lot of reading over the weekend, just looking at late cycle stuff and where we are. Money supply has been contracting. I mentioned leading economic indicators. Credit card rates are now north of 21%. Credit card debt is north of a trillion dollars. There's so many things out there to be concerned about. And we talk about this, we seemingly forget. Two tens are still inverted to the tune of about 50 basis points. And if we make it to February, that'll be the longest inversion, I think, since they started keeping records here in the United States. And each time, and you go back and look, the longer the inversion, the worse the downturn. And we're on the precipice of a record inversion. So none of these things are going away. And I don't think there's a magic wand or some elixir that's going to fix these things. Again, I just want to emphasize, I'm shocked at how long it's taken just for the market to realize it. But it doesn't mean there's some, to Liz's point earlier, come to Jesus moment on the horizon. Yeah. And Liz, you just spent some time. I'm sure you were very reflective writing your 2024 outlook. Anything, mm -hmm. and again, we're going to put in the show notes where people can find that outlook. It's also obviously on your socials, at Twitter. Any like one or two things you want to take out that you weren't given a lot of thought to, let's say a few months ago, but yeah. like are top of mind right now as you're heading into the new year? Yeah, I would just say I haven't changed my mind that we have to have some kind of contraction or that I haven't jumped on the bull bandwagon and, and said, OK, you know what? We solved it. Everything's going to be fine. What I did adjust in my thinking was maybe it doesn't have to be some huge event. It doesn't have to be no. some big dramatic thing that takes it all down. Maybe it's a slow grind lower that occurs because consumers start getting tapped out because the job market softens maybe just a little bit too much. And the path by which we get there might be different than what I expected. One of the things that is later in the outlook, I talk about being wrapped in contradictions, mm -hmm. and, and we're going to start this year wrapped in the same types of contradictions where you've got this set of nagging negatives. Guy mentioned the yield curve inversions. We've got PMIs in contraction. There's a lot of different things, the timing of rate hikes, all of that are nagging negatives, but there are promising elements. And then later talking about the idea that a bet on a soft landing is a bet on the consumer. So we better hope that the consumer holds up if we are declaring victory on a soft landing. And probably one of my favorite charts in the whole outlook, it's called Income and Consumer Expense since December 2019. And then we separate out four categories, food, energy, shelter, and transportation. Cumulatively, those four categories in order are up 25.2%, 26.4%, 20.5%, and 26.1%. Wage growth is only up about 20.5%. So it hasn't kept up. Mm -hmm. And this is the part that maybe it doesn't take the system down in grand fashion, but this is why consumers are spending more on credit cards. It's why buy now, pay later is so popular because expenses are still high. So we would need to see some deflation in order to take care of this. 
And I am not convinced that the market is going to like deflation as some kind of bullish signal. Let's talk really quickly about housing because, again, there's a lot of data this week. Our main man, Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting, had a note out this morning talking about how he wants to fade them from a technical perspective. Guy, some of the moves that we saw last week when the two-year came in, what, 50 basis points or something over the course of the week, we saw the 30-year mortgage get below 7% for the first time in a little bit. It got as high as 8%. On one of those days, Toll Brothers was up 9% making a new all-time high. That just seemed extraordinary. Talk to me a little bit about your thoughts here. If you are buying home builders up 50% in two months at all-time highs because you think a a soft no landing is going to be great for the housing market, I, I just, I don't know how that works. It feels like an accident waiting to happen. This is where it gets dicey, I think, for home builders. And we mentioned, I think, on Fast Money last week, Toll Brothers announced a big stock buyback and people took that as they're encouraged by what they see. And I would agree with that, but it doesn't mean they have a stock buyback in place. There's not some accelerated stock buyback at $102, just to keep that in perspective. The other thing people will look at is rates are lower. That's good for home builders. I get it. And the fact that on valuation, you can make a case for all these names, but that's always true. And quite frankly, valuation is probably the last thing you should look at when you think about home builders. One of the things that I've said, and again, it's been wrong. You know, it's funny. We actually did really well with home builders most of this year. We thought they could continue to rally. We thought there'd be a point in terms of yields going higher, a line of demarcation where home builders would no longer like it. That proved to be about, I don't know, 4.6%. You saw what happened from, I want to say, middle of September into November. And then you obviously you've seen the turnaround. This is the part that's confused me. I guess not confused me, surprised me with the speed with which you got in here. But I don't think now's the time to be buying home builders as well. As a matter of fact, technically, there's a very good chance you put in some of these potential key reversal levels on a bunch of these names, not least of which Toll Brothers. So I understand the thesis behind it. I don't agree with the thesis behind it. The home builders are one of those sectors and much like small caps, so responsive to cyclical mm-hmm. factors. And one of the things that if we change the time frame a little bit, when we think about mortgage rates, one of the things that I said a few months ago, maybe just a couple months ago, is that the expectation for this whole cycle has been that housing was going to eventually fall apart, that we'd see home prices mm-hmm. fall because mortgage rates were so high. And what I think most people, self-included, did not adjust for is the fact that the housing market just stopped moving. There was nothing happening because people just decided not to exit their current mortgage. So the idea that as rates fell, because it's a relative thing, right, they went from above eight to down below seven, people were clamoring over themselves that hadn't been able to buy homes. So it kept prices elevated. Mm -hmm. It kept sentiment maybe somewhat elevated. But the reality is the whole reason people were still able to move homes in the new homes market was because home builders were giving some incentives. You could get a better deal to buy a home in the new homes market than you could in the existing homes market. And I think those days are probably over. So we're going to end up at this place where I would expect we have more inventory coming on the market in housing than we will have buyers clamoring over themselves at 6% mortgage rates to Mm -hmm. buy it. So there should be a softening. It's just such a lag. I'm with Guy. I think we don't you don't want to fall over yourself to pile into home builders. At yeah. This point. yeah, let's talk a little bit about M&A. So there's two competing headlines this morning. We alluded to U.S. Steel being bought by Nippon, which is a Japanese competitor. Again, you were you didn't think that $45 number that was thrown out there by a couple of bidders would be the thing. I think your point was if there's a couple of bidders and the, and the leak is $45, it's likely to come higher and 55 bucks, $14 billion is the price. And then another headline is that Adobe is calling off their $20 billion acquisition of Figma, which I think is interesting. And that faced a lot of regulatory pressure. So two competing headlines on a day about pretty decent size 
M&A thoughts here, guy, because it feels like when we turn the calendar into January, there's going to be a lot of strategic M&A considered, especially with rates coming down. Maybe that was one of the things that kind of seized up that sort of activity earlier in the year, especially a lot of the uncertainty about the the macro and just the economy here specifically in the U.S. in this regulatory environment. Adobe's probably Adobe or sector specific and more about this than I do. I'll say this about U.S. Steel. We mentioned it last week. Now, with five bidders in name, I think the stock closed around 38 bucks or so. I said there's a very good chance this deal happens north of $45. I, I didn't think it would be Nippon, but it doesn't matter. But I also didn't think it was going to be 55 bucks. So it succeeded my expectations as well. But I think your point is exactly right. With rates coming down as fast as they have come down, I think there's going to be a rush to do M&A in an environment where people see how quickly rates can go the other way. So I think there's going to be this opportunistic move in the market for a lot of companies coming together over the next few months in probably trying to get ahead of maybe the inevitable that rates start to head higher as well. So we'll see. But you could see some really interesting deals. And we've seen it in the energy space. Obviously, this U.S. deals in the resource space. We've seen it in the healthcare space. I think you're going to continue to see more of it, Dan. All right, let's talk earnings. There's a few out this week that I think are going to be fairly telling. And I'm just curious, maybe Liz, from a sector perspective, if I said to you, FedEx reports tomorrow, Accenture reports tomorrow, Micron on Wednesday, and then on Thursday, we have Nike. And then here's a pair that are under the radar, but this is Cintas and paychecks. Okay. Mm. So Cintas is this uniform provider, right? Yeah. To companies of all sorts. And then paychecks, which obviously payment processing. And I'm not asking you specifically on any of these names, but are you interested? Because I know that you look at a lot of earnings. You look at a lot of what C-level folks are saying about their own businesses and about the economy. Any of these names interesting to you like that you want to extrapolate from based on what you hear from FedEx. I think FedEx is probably the more interesting one just because I'm I'm pretty obsessed with consumer behavior right now and, and what people are doing and buying, especially during the holiday season. Now, FedEx reporting now isn't going to give us a huge lens into the holiday season, but just the activity perhaps leading up to it and the idea that retail sales have rebounded, people are still spending. Uh, I'd be really interested to hear not only what FedEx saw last quarter, but what they're expecting for 2024 and if they're expecting there to be a softening inactivity because we've made this huge transition from consumers buying goods to consumers now engaging in services more. So I would expect a little softening there, but uh, very interested to hear what so, their outlook is. So Guy, FedEx has rallied 25% in the last like month and a half or so. It's still down, let's call it 10 plus percent from its all-time highs made in 2021. You have this sort of rally. You've had all these labor issues this year. You've had a lot of poor visibility as it relates to the consumer and, and, and some other behavior as it relates to the changing landscape, I think competitive landscape for them. Curious, if you don't have a lot of visibility, are you going to give gangbusters guidance after your Q4 that should be excellent. You know what I mean? Like this is their quarter. To me, I would almost think that as we get into Q4 earnings season in the next month or so, that we're going to see a lot of cautious guidance in a market that has already pulled forward a lot of enthusiasm that might not have to do with a lot of single names. You mentioned the move we've seen over the last couple of months. I mean, FedEx has probably rallied close to 100%. I would say a little less, maybe 96% since the lows we saw in September of 2022. And it's been this slow and steady, despite one little move lower, move from the lower left to the upper right. All the FedEx problems we saw to a certain extent in 2021, 22 were FedEx-induced, FedEx-specific, seemingly getting their act together. But they're getting their act together at a time when things, I think, the rug is going to start to get pulled out from beneath them. 
They've had obviously the tailwind of lower energy costs. There's a lot of things working in their favor, but we're getting precariously close to the all-time highs we saw, I want to say in the spring, May of 2021 or so. There's a, there's a chance we just continue to do this grind into earnings tomorrow, and then you get a rug pull on the back of something unexpected, which we have seen before in a negative sense in FedEx. That's sort of what I'm looking for, just in terms of trading the stock. One name that I think will be interesting, at least from the investor reaction, will be Nike because the stock has rallied, let's call it 35% off those recent lows. It's still down over 30% from its late 2021 highs. And so when I think about what they have to say geographically is going to be interesting, obviously higher end consumer discretionary. This should be their season. I know there were some analysts out talking about the Paris Olympics this summer. I I always think those are goofy calls, you know what I mean, in front of a big sporting event. But to me, Nike's reaction, let's just say it's a good quarter. Let's say they give decent guidance. The stock, again, has had this huge rally over the last couple of months. To me, those are just really hard stories to chase. And it leads me to a Starbucks because there was a time earlier this year where Disney, Starbucks, Nike, some really high-end consumer discretionary, they were all acting so poorly, right? Relative relative to some other names in consumer. And then there's been this little bifurcation. It's interesting, Starbucks guy, when they reported a couple months ago, stock had a big gap, kept on going. I think it got above 105. Here it is down at $97. It's basically filled in that whole gap. So again, Danny Moses says this all the time, 2024 might be a stock picker's market. There might be more dispersion as it relates with all of this uncertainty. We might see continued volatility, maybe on single names. We may see parts of the market, like we talked about that Russell outperform other parts of the market. If we are really seeing a broadening out of the rally, those are things we all got to be cognizant of. Guy, thoughts on that? If you look at Starbucks, you're still in a pretty pretty significant downtrend. Despite that spike higher we saw after earnings, we were still in a downtrend over the last couple of years. And I think you had eight or nine straight days of the stock deteriorating which we hadn't seen in quite some time. Nike is fascinating here. You obviously have these little double bottoms. Technically, if you want to go back and look at the lows we saw in the fall of 2022, and then again, the lows we saw in September of this year. If you go and look at this, 127-ish stands out like a sore thumb. That was the highs we made in January earlier this year. There's a really good chance we sort of levitate up to those levels and fail. And the same way you saw double bottoms a month or so ago, I think there's a very good chance you put in a little double top here on the back of earnings. All right, we covered a lot of ground here, a lot of data, a lot of earnings still to happen, uh, a lot of chasing going on in the stock market, maybe some broadening out, maybe it's a dash for trash. Who knows? Check us out on the market call. Guy and I will be here Monday through Thursday, 1 p.m. on our YouTube channel. That would be the Risk Reversal Media YouTube channel. And people, go get Liz's 2024 outlook at the SoFi Investing blog, because this is the last of her, the last of Liz for 2023 with Guy and Dan. And you deserve a little time off. I'm sure you're going to be working, just not with us. I appreciate that. I wanted to go out on Guy's birthday and celebrate Very kind of you, EY. Very kind. I'll just say this. I know that Guy and myself and our team will be in constant contact with you, but I guess you won't be. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not done talking to you guys. I'm just done on the mic. We really appreciate your contributions this year. We appreciate your support. We appreciate your friendship. You've always shown up for us. And listen, it's been a, a lot more fun than just Guy and me having Liz around. Guy, I'm sure you could second that. 
100%. Without question, we enjoy not only your company, but your brilliance in terms of the market and your preparation. So thank you for all you've done for us, EY. Thank you. And I will see everybody in 2024. Yeah. Have a great Christmas, everyone. Guy and I will be back. You don't get to lose us that quickly. <laughs> Stick around for our conversation <laughs> with John Brignola on private credit. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers their community oversees an astounding 48 trillion dollars and 16 trillion dollars in assets respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan. Today, Dan, we're joined by John Brignola, managing partner and founder of LBC Credit Partners. John, how are you? Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. We're excited to have you on. And after school, I went to the Dick Tracy Institute of figuring things out on my own. So LBC, your name is Brignola. So my sense is you're the B in LBC. So talk to me about Excellent. the L and the C and talk to me about the firm in general, how you got there, your path to LBC Capital. Yeah, LBC, very creative name. Uh, it's three of us. There are three partners. Uh, the L is a very successful uh, gentleman in the Philadelphia area who put us in business. The C is my partner, uh, Nate Cohen. I started in this business, gosh, it has to be in 2000, 2001, I was at a big hedge fund in Chicago. Uh, I started with some private credit investing. It was a nascent market. At that time, banks would come to me and ask me to fill the balance of a capital structure need. Very niche type business. And I've watched this business over the years just evolve and grow exponentially. Way back when I would meet with investors and they would say, I love this idea. I don't even know where to put it in my portfolio. And then today, everybody's got an allocation to it. It's just amazing how it's grown in the last 20 years. We started LBC in 2005. We have managed or are managing 
11 different funds now, uh, almost because it's 3.9 billion of AUM. We've invested over $10 billion in deals. I got it, it has to be 320, 325 deals over the years. We're about a, a 70 person shop. Uh, we're owned by a credit organization out of New York uh, called CIFC. We, we sold the business to CIFC at the end of 21. We, we were looking for a more global distribution for our investor base. We had always raised money domestically and uh, we found a good partner in CIFC. John, give us a sense. You, you mentioned that when you started the firm, it was a nascent market, right? And you've talked about the exponential growth here. What are some of the dynamics, let's just say nearly 20 years on from the founding of this firm that have caused this to become really such a big asset class, right? And under the radar of maybe a lot of, let's say, our listeners who are really focused on the stock market. Right, or they hear about private equity doing these sorts of deals. What are the dynamics that have made private credit like such an avenue for growth and has attracted so much capital, but then also some of the smartest minds in finance? Like growing up on Wall Street, for you and I and Guy, we always thought of these masters of the universe were these private equity folks. So, talk to us a little bit about the evolution of private credit. And then let's definitely spend some time talking about this current environment because it seems like every day when I open my facts set or I open my blue. Bloomberg, there is a new story about private credit. It's a hot market right now. But years ago, as I mentioned, we were rounding out the capital structure with a bank. So this is a way to think about it. Banks used to be my primary source of leads, opportunities to invest. Today, it comes directly from the private equity sponsors. And really, it was the acceptance of alternative debt from the sponsors that accelerated the growth of this business, right? So the capital, once there was loan demand from the private equity shops, uh, more and more investors started to pile into the space. When you think about it, most of the transactions today are senior secured, floating rate. You, you don't have interest rate risk, you don't have duration. It's senior secured and you're getting returns, at least in today's market of you know net 12, 13 to 15, 16%. That's not a bad return when you think about some of the alternatives where you can put some capital. If you're the CFO of a bigger company and you have a maturity coming. You're dependent on the market conditions when you go to refinance your existing uh, debt obligations. With private credit, you're not subjected to those technical market technicals, right? Market could sell off. You need to go and, and uh, have the market clear a BSL or a broadly syndicated loan or a high yield loan. You're at risk for those market technicals. With private credit, you're negotiating with a couple of lenders, one, two, three lenders, and you're cutting your deal insulated from some of those market technicals. I find this to be a really interesting space. And I, listen, I, I can't wax poetic, but from what I've read and from what I think I know, in the last 15 years or so in a zero interest rate environment, I'm sure the business did well, probably did very well. The competition was such that sure you missed things or there just weren't those opportunities. Now we're in a completely different paradigm. As an outsider looking in, I would imagine that you can see on the horizon what's coming your way. Debt restructuring is going to be huge over the next couple of years is my sense, given what we've seen over the last decade. And the M&A space is going to be fascinating as well as people start to position themselves for what's next. On top of which, regulation for banks and the fact that they've probably not removed themselves, but pulled back a little bit is going to give your firm and the industry in a whole a huge opportunity in the next, I would imagine, three to five years. 
thoughts on that? There's a lot to, uh, to comment on there, Guy, but yeah, from, from a regulatory standpoint, I would anticipate more opportunity for private credit over, uh, over the next three to five years. It has to occur if these regulations uh, go through. Continued acceptance of this product. So not only private equity shops, even family-owned businesses today are borrowing on a private credit basis. When you think about the opportunities, listen, when base rates were near zero, it was a tough market for us to make double-digit type returns. There's just no base rate. Just to give you a perspective today, right now, deals that we're investing in on a gross unlevered basis are uh, yield to maturities of 12 to 13%. And then we bundle these portfolios and put some leverage on it. Not overly risky amount of leverage, but like one to one, two to one, very conservative leverage. There's a metric that I use just to manage the business. And if you look at the end of 21, the uh, spread per unit of leverage, right? So leverage is the amount of debt over the company's EBITDA or earnings, right? Spread, how much spread you're getting per unit of leverage. So back in uh, the end of 21, it was about 136 bips. It's up to 168 or so today. So that's a 24% increase. It's a measure of risk, really a risk-adjusted return. So the opportunity today is it's just been tremendous. Now, listen, with the news we had yesterday, we're probably going to see some stimulated M&A activity. I think sponsors have been on the sidelines trying to figure out how to finance their deals. And they're going through a price discovery process with sellers. But I think now that it seems like we're at the end of increasing rates, we're likely to see a decline in rates. We should see uh, a stimulation of uh, M&A activity. Spreads in our market will probably hold or, or tighten a little bit, but still it's a great time to invest in private credit at this stage. John, you mentioned the M&A environment and in certain sectors of, of the market, we've seen a lot of activity like in the energy space. What are some of the deals that you're likely to see in what sectors? Are, are there some sectors that like our listeners should keep your eyes open for that kind of lend themselves to the sort of, of deals um, that you guys have played in traditionally? Within private credit, the business services continue to be very popular areas to lend. Think about it, right? Business services tend to have low capital expenditure needs. So you typically are generating some high free cash flow. Technology, software, cloud services, very popular areas. Healthcare continues to be an area that we see a lot of activity. We're not big energy lenders, but that has also been a, a popular area. It declines less and less in retail and restaurants, a little bit in media, Financial services, if you can find them, tend to be pretty good opportunities as well. We mentioned that banks, and we talk about it on Fast Money, we talk about it on our podcast, falling under the auspices of regulators and clearly a huge bullseye on their collective backs. But private credit is probably a few steps behind. I think the Bank of England recently had some warnings out. So are there... I don't want to say existential because that's a bit hyperbolic, but are there concerns around the seemingly light being shed upon private credit and what that means to the industry? I always am looking out on the horizon to see what kind of regulations are next. Um, there, there's been a, a there's been some controversy about uh, reporting requirements uh, more recently in in private credit. I, I'm not sure if that's fully sorted out yet. I think back in 08 in the Great Recession, I think regulators wanted. 
the market to step up on a private basis to help fund transactions and have the banks take less risk. And I think at some point, we're probably going to fall under greater regulatory scrutiny. Not sure what it looks like, but I'm sure as well as I do is as markets grow and get bigger and bigger, I think it's a trillion five market now, there could be an accident and that's when the regulators usually step in. So what does it mean though that we keep seeing these headlines about large investment banks like Goldman, I think this was just a couple days ago, looking to double their efforts in private credit. They're rejiggering some of their divisions. They're bringing back some different people from different alternative groups within the bank. When you see those sorts of players mounting, do you see them as competition? You just told us that obviously a lot of your flow came from the banks. How how should some of our listeners think about that a little bit when they see these banks that have really struggled over the last few years after that sort of boom that we had in 2021 and the rate increases that we've seen and the inverted yield curve situation that we've had for over a year and a half or so, banks have really underperformed. Is that one of the reasons why just the returns that you just mentioned that you see in this space, is that one of the reasons why we're seeing investment banks like Goldman really step up their efforts in the private credit space? They're losing revenue on the other side of the business, right? The deals that they could put together for BSL for or high yield. Private credit is taking market share from both BSL as well as high yield. When I say BSL, broadly syndicated loans. So yeah, sure, the banks want to step in and participate in this market in any way they can. We, over the years, have seen a number of the big banks play, right? You know, Goldman, JP Morgan, they all find their spots. For our business, we tend to focus more on the middle market. So we're, we're somewhat insulated from um, the very big players. But as capital flows in, usually it's flowing into the uh, upper side of the market where we're seeing more and more of these mega private credit deals. We're recording this now a day after a lot of news sources are calling it the great pivot by the Federal Reserve. And it's interesting that they paused their interest rate hikes. This is over the summer, right? They started raising in March of 2022. They essentially went from zero to the upper end of the bound was five and a half percent in Fed funds. We saw this really quick move in the 10 year that went from 4% to 5%, I think in a matter of a month and a half or so from let's call it late August into October, but it's retreated now. As we're recording, we're below 4% on the 10-year. And so you think about that sort of volatility, it's pretty fascinating. I look at the high-yield ETF, the iShares iBox. This has gone from a 52-week low at those October lows to a 52-week high today. So talk to us about that sort of volatility in and around yields. Obviously, now the Fed funds futures are pricing in cuts next year in in, in Q1. I think a lot of folks who listen to Fed Chair Powell, what he had to say at the presser, they feel fairly well convinced that we are going to be cutting for the right reasons. So I'm just curious that two months ago, higher for longer was the narrative. And now it just seems like all systems go, the Fed's going to be able to do a mission accomplished at some point in the next few months or so. What does that mean for your markets? Because it seems like that's sort of volatility, at least the way Guy and I think about it through the lens of the markets we look at, to me, doesn't make me feel more confident that the central bankers have control over the situation that has been very volatile over the last three years or so. So I'm curious how you're thinking about that volatility and how you think about, let's say, the high yield index that's gone, like I mentioned, from 52-week lows to 52-week highs in a straight line. That doesn't make me feel more confident about the environment. Yeah, I I agree with you. I'm not sure we're out of the woods yet with respect to uh, the effect of uh, elevated rates. On the 10-year side, that has limited impact 
on specifically on our investment model, right? Everything we do is floating rates, so it's very short duration, but it does affect how deals are priced, right? So a buyer and a seller are modeling in valuations. So t- obviously a 10-year sub four should stimulate the M&A market. That's what we're hoping. If we see that, we should see um, more loan activity as well. As I mentioned earlier, I would expect if the economy remains healthy, we should expect a small tightening in spreads on our side, just reflecting uh, a more positive uh, economic outlook. I mentioned all the reasons why you should be optimistic going forward, and I happen to believe them. But just to play the other side, I think it was early November, the Wall Street Journal had an article talking about private credit and saying, basically, as the Fed hiked and things got tighter, it would not be the end of private credit, but would make things extraordinarily difficult for the space. And the exact opposite has happened. So with that in mind, what concerns you about the environment for specifically your business? Yeah, you have to think about the marginal borrowers, right? The ones that are not performing the way they had planned, especially if the leverage points are high. So, right, they took on more debt than they could service. I'm hearing about some deals that are now picking, so they're not paying cash interest. It really gives the company more free cash flow to keep the business running so they don't have to service the debt with cash payments. They're the types of situations that I keep my my eye on. I think we do a good job of, of structuring our deals uh, appropriately. I don't believe we're going to see higher higher rates, but I, I do think we're going to see companies that just can't continue to service debt at base rates at four or five percent. Even if the Fed follows the futures market, there are high rates for these companies that borrowed, think about it, borrowed in 21. 21 was a record year for private credit loan volume. There were deals getting off at six, seven times of leverage. Those companies, it's tough to to, uh, continue to service that kind of debt. John, it's a fascinating conversation. We appreciate your time. For our viewers, listeners, how can they find you? How can they learn more about you and the firm? Thanks, Guy. Yeah, I think the best way to reach out is uh, through our website, uh, lbccredit.com. There's contact information there. Anybody could reach us through lbccredit.com. Thank you so much, John, for joining us here. I enjoyed that conversation a great deal. I think it's fascinating. And as I said, as I started this, I think the next three to five years in your space are going to be some amazing opportunities given what's going on with banks and given what's going on the landscape of, of the world that we talk about every day. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to meet you both. And I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.